Welcome to Data Remediations, a podcast connecting environmental data with people and places through stories and art. Hi, this is Bethany, and for this episode of Data Remediations, we have a special interview with Philadelphia-based documentary filmmaker Bilal Motley. Bilal's also worked as a stand-up comedian, and for nearly 15 years, he worked in management at the Philadelphia Refinery. Bilal offers us a glimpse into the everyday world of a petroleum refinery, and we talk about what it was like to work there, and how it felt to be there the night in June when it blew up. I wanted to bring Bilal onto the pod because his story illuminates how much we in Philadelphia, like in other refining cities, have chosen to forget. All of our data storytelling projects in Philadelphia have this focus on missing data, data we forgot or chose not to collect. Our work is inspired by the river that that refinery is located on, the Schuylkill. It's impossible to spell and hard for non-Philadelphians to say. Schuylkill, it took me forever to learn it. It's an old Dutch word, and it means hidden creek. The mouth of the river used to be hidden from settler colonists. The whole area and its countless historic creeks and streams rippled with tall marsh grasses. Today, those productive wetlands are almost gone, but the river is hidden in another way. Today, it's obscured by ignorance, that is, by all the things we humans don't know about it, or have chosen not to know about it, and especially about its tidal stretch. The tidal schuylkill has been claimed and reclaimed by energy companies, and especially by the petroleum refineries that have operated there since the 1860s. In our last episode, you heard about a project the Altering Shores, which was created to make visible the refining pollutants and the long, toxic legacies we've chosen to forget along both the Schuylkill and the Delaware River. And in a future episode, which the student climate storytellers and I are working on right now, we'll talk about how Philadelphians of all ages are sharing their visions of what a future beyond refining might look like in our city. But let's get to this episode with Bilal. He's talking about his documentary, Midnight Oil. He spoke with me and student climate storyteller Danny Cooper about working at the refinery, about how good the pay was, about the poverty of many neighbors, another example of the ways that digital poverty reflects and can exacerbate analog or lived poverty. Bilal spoke about the ways he recognized the life stories of fence-line neighbors in his own history. Bilal was one of the few African-American workers at the PES. And Danny and I spoke to him about the reactions of some of his former co-workers to his decision to make public his experiences of working at the refinery in the wake of the explosion. When the plant blew up on June 21st, Philadelphians had a rude awakening about just how ignorant we were. But this unknowing, our data poverty and ignorance, is not particular to just Philadelphia. Across the globe, the oil and gas industry is not well regulated, and it's often located in places next to already vulnerable communities. 
The culture of laxness and the data poverty depend in no small part on the paucity of insider accounts and whistleblower documentaries of the industry's dirty and dangerous practices, despite the very real dangers they present to the workers themselves. Our conversation with Bilal begins with money. For the workers, many of whom in Philadelphia are sadly now out of a job, it's about good paying jobs, despite the health risks to themselves and others and the enormous environmental damages. I don't think they're in love with the fossil fuel industry. They're in love with the paycheck. Like that money, most of the people just have high school diplomas and they're making like doctor money, surgeon money. It's crazy. They're in love with the money. Like if they, if it was a lollipop factory and they were making that money, they would be there in a second. Because it's been hard. I got friends uh, moved to Arkansas. They had to move to Texas, uproot their families just to make sort of close to what they were making at the refinery. So it's about, it's about the money. You know, if we can, you know, find a way, like, if we transition to renewable energy, we can find a way to get the pay up. Because right now, like, there's, I seen I saw something about solar panel training in Philly class, classes, but the pay's not there. What people in that industry are typically used to. So it's about the money, like, 100%. If the money, if the money is right, they will be there in a second. That's so great. I yeah. think we're going to start this podcast with the lollipop factory. Yeah. Yes, yes. They will be there in a second. They'll be there in a second. <laughs> they will be there in a second. Yes, my name is Bilal Motley. Born in Mississippi. I grew up in Chester, Pennsylvania. Worked at the South Philly Refinery for nearly 15 years. Good. This is the second, no, third or fourth time actually <laughs> that I've gotten to talk yeah. with Bilal and it's really always a pleasure. Hi, I'm Danny Cooper. I'm a public research intern with PPH and I had the pleasure of also seeing the 10 minute screening and Q&A. Do you want to set a little bit of the context about why the plant closed? Wow, uh, PES has been in financial trouble years. Whenever we requested repairs as employees, you know, it was always about money and shutdowns to improve the plant. It's always about money and the bankruptcies and we're fighting for health care and things like that. So we always knew that the company, they were trying to get out of the oil business. So two weeks before the fire on June 21st, there was another fire at our 868 Catcracker unit. And that was pretty bad. And then we had like legendary rains. It was just extreme. So we're recovering from that. And then we started to come up for air and then the big blast happened on June 21st. And a few of my friends, we knew immediately that it was over. This is gonna be their excuse to just shut it down. In that sneak peek that you shared with us, the footage is kind of unbelievable a lot of that was you also grabbing some crowdsourced footage um, that had circulated pretty widely but you were actually there when it yes. happened yes so when I when you talked about like oh I was processing the closure of this plant I was thinking you were also processing like the fright and trauma of being there that night on June 21st in the wee hours do you want to talk about that and then the process of making midnight oil? Yeah, um, another night shift. I'm the night shift person. I'll give Bilal the night shift. He, he loves a night shift. And it was 4 a.m. I was just excited about vacation. And then uh, all of a sudden heard a, a seasoned operator 
like say, you know, he'd be cur- loud curse words. So I knew something was wrong. Ran down the steps of the office and uh, saw what was a nightmare. So it was surreal. I was scared. I hesitated. <laughs> I hesitated to go right towards it like I do with any other fire because the acid unit is terrifying. You're taught to, to be afraid of the acid unit. So got there. I saw it. And several blasts later, I just thought I was going to die. I thought all my friends were dead. They got there first. And I thought everybody was gone. And, um, yeah, just lucky to get out. So after that, just stunned, sad, depressed. The Hope Refinery was depressed. Uh, I just said, I have, I have to document this. I don't know what it's going to become, but I have to, I have to document this. It's so, I think, amazing that you had the foresight to pull out your camera and start talking to people and start yourself also filming what had been your workplace for a really long time. Mm -hmm. I want to just come back to that moment again where you heard in your office that this explosion had happened. And in a prior conversation, you had shared with, with us that when the specific unit was identified, that was when you were like, this is really bad. Yes, I heard it in the dispatcher's voice. These are seasoned, stone-cold professionals. And uh, he said, attention all units, attention all units. Report of a fire at 433. He hesitated. Report of a fire, because you repeat it twice. Report of a fire at 433. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. He doesn't, he doesn't use it. That never happens. Like, this is bad. And I heard 433. It was surreal running from my office. And I just knew that this is it. Like, to just go from nothing happened, quiet night, and to just, like, you're just inside of an action movie. And uh, it was one of those surreal moments, you know. Like, several moments in my life, like, when I first went to Paris for the first time. Like, yes, yeah, out-of-body experience. When my daughter was born eight years ago. This is a moment I knew, you knew in the moment, this is significant. And it was one of the scariest moments of my life. So it's yeah. like 419 in the morning and yes. the dispatcher is yelling 433. Yes. What does 433 mean? We know. We're taught from refinery school the first day you're there. The acid unit, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. Acid can go down to your bones. It can uh, cause death at large quantities. You're just terrified. Like, if you know you have to go to your my unit, wastewater in the boiler house, I go around. <laughs> you go around. Oh, that's the acid unit. Just stay away. Like, it's a scary place. So that's 433. Yes, that's 433. Yes. And uh, this refinery, as you ha- explore in Midnight mm-hmm. Oil, what was in that acid? Like, it's hydrogen fluoride, Hydrogen right? fluoride. And... Uh, For years, they kept it safe. Nothing's really happened except for in 2009, where I think it was like 13 maintenance people were injured. And the union fought to get that asset off the refinery, but the company didn't want to do that. So, yeah, HF, I just knew. At first, you could just see it on fire, like, uh uh-oh. The first thing I'm I'm thinking, did the control board operator divert the asset into the rad drum? That's the drum where if you divert it there then, you know, you might be okay. And we Can didn't know ha- that. Okay, mm. so that, that's really helpful to understand. Mm. I'm not an engineer mm-hmm. like you are. Mm-hmm. So the drum, what is exactly that drum that it can be diverted into? Yes, the the RAD drum, Rapid Acid de So the control board operator up in Central Command 
would press a series of buttons and uh, divert it. Like, as soon as you know something's going wrong, you divert that acid. We didn't know if that happened. So we're just out there, you know, responding with our fire gear on. And I was like, I was like, I don't know. This is it. <laughs> we're going to die. You know, I just So it's knew. been widely covered. Like, the city's report was, like, a near mi- Philadelphia, a near miss. Like, yes. a close catastrophe. It could have been mm-hmm. absolutely so horrific yeah. with a million people in the blast zone. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I don't know who the man was who was in the dispatch, but thank God for the guy who diverted it. Yes, yes. it was so close. Yes, yes. yes. Actually, it was a it's a female. She she's brilliant. She's um, yeah. I know her a little bit, but she's uh, actually wanted to make this film <laughs> about her initially, you know. But obviously, I respected her wishes. She I heard through mutual friends she didn't want she didn't do any interviews like she and I respected that. But she's a hero. She saved Philadelphia. It's yeah. amazing. If yeah. you're listening, yeah. woman in the control room, thank you yeah. <laughs> from all of <laughs> we Philadelphia. All thank you. We all thank you. That's really incredible. Mm-hmm. I really want to come back, though, to, you know, you just mentioned that she didn't want to talk to anyone. She didn't want to do interviews with you. She didn't want to do interviews with anyone. You were also a longtime refinery mm-hmm employee you know i know you have a background in the arts i imagine as part of your decision to turn to working through what happened creatively with your documentary practice what's it been like though that decision who's been talking with you Mm. how are you what's your process been like for making this film wow i reached out to a few friends producer friends uh writer friends director friends and um my one producer said start doing diaries so that's why that's in there because i I needed that if i didn't have that i was self-destructing inside of the refinery so as it was closing and yeah i was just venting and and as you see i was very honest very vulnerable it's painful to watch that so it started with the diaries then i started it was very organic i started interviewing uh co-workers and then those public meetings happen. I was like, okay. I always heard about Philly Thrive for years. I would hear and discussed in meetings and I was like, let me go see what this is about. Because before I couldn't put a face to it. I just knew that they didn't like what was going on in the refinery and I started filming that. And in the film you see me start to change. I start to recognize like, hold on. They look a lot like people that I grew up around in Chester, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. In Mississippi, where I was born. And I couldn't ignore them anymore. Before I could just go to work and you know, just go home, go on my little vacation, go to, go to Europe. You know, I didn't have to think about them, you know what I mean? Because I didn't live in the city anymore. And I had to confront their feelings about the refinery when I went to those meetings. And I eventually went to to one of their Philly Thrive meetings. And uh, I just broke down there. I was terrified. And, and I didn't film it. I wanted it to be organic. And I had my daughter with me. And, um, yeah, I just said... Um, you know, I work there, and I, I believe you. You say you have asthma, you say cancer, things like that. I believe you. And, um, yeah, I'm just here to listen and learn from you. So, so Bilal, you're from Chester, mm-hmm. and 
you're African-American. Many of the engaged activists with Billy Thrive are African-American. I'm curious, what percentage of the workforce in the refinery were African-American or other people of color? Yeah, even? I would say maybe, maybe 5%, maybe. About 5 to, yeah, about 5%. When we had you do the sneak peek, when, mm -hmm. when we got to feature that here, we showed the first rough like 10 minutes or mm -hmm. so, but I've of course had the privilege of seeing the whole rough cut, mm -hmm. which is a real treat. And in later parts that you will release later, mm -hmm. um, you speak a lot about what it's like to be a, a worker of color, yeah. what it was like there, and what it was like to build bridges to neighbors. And I just wanted to, you know, offer you the chance to think about that here on the podcast. Yeah. As soon as you get there, you notice uh, you're pulled to the side by older African-Americans. We call them the OGs. And they just tell you, oh, watch out, don't do this. Make sure you show up one time. Because they've seen other young African-Americans come in there and just ruin the opportunity because it's a big opportunity. African-Americans back in the day, you couldn't get in there. You had to know somebody. But I think it changed maybe around the 80s, 90s, where it was just open to everybody. So, yeah, you're just pulled to the side and uh, don't do this, do that. Oh, man, don't. So I watched my older mentors, one in particular. He's very boisterous. He's like my father. He's very, you know, as we would call a race man. Like, he's very proud of uh, being African-American. And, um, and I saw how he was talked about behind his back. They never said that to his face. And um, I was like, okay. Me, like, always wanted to be likable. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do the opposite. I'm always be agreeable, always smile, you know. And my dad told me early on, and uh, my dad was in a nation of Islam when he was younger, very proud man. When you walk into a restaurant or store, smile. So I, the unintended consequence of that is I'm always trying to... I, I didn't always want to smile, but I think he was saying it without saying it. He's an African-American. You have to look uh, non-threatening. You know what I mean? So I carried that into the college and every job after that. And then the refinery, uh, always be likable. Always. I never said a sarcastic comment to anyone. I never said anything mean to anyone. You know? and, and I'm not a bad person, but at home, I'm not like that. You know what I mean? I do get angry, but I never showed anger there. You know, and I felt a special responsibility. It's manager. probably also mm. worthy to note for, mm. since people can't see you, that mm. you're also really tall. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. So I, I kind of... Like, honest, that's a, that's a good point, because someone pulled me to the side, some Af older African-Americans, like, dude, stand up. Why are, you, why are you shrinking down? You're making yourself smaller. You know what I mean? Like, be proud. Out there. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's like you make yourself small. And I do that. And, you know, I'm better with it now. But, um, yeah, just don't make yourself small. Like, uh, be proud of who you are, you know. Yeah, it's just like in America. Like in college, I just wanted to fit in. You know what I mean? So I just kind of figured out what the dominant society likes and what they're interested in, and I just... Taylor, oh, do you like the Beatles? I listen to the Beatles, too. You know, they say you're always trying to fit in. And so the refinery, uh, yeah, just try to, they talk about hunting. I don't like hunting, but I just, I learn about it. <laughs> the Phillies, I don't like baseball, but I learn about the Phillies. So you're always trying to assimilate. Okay, we yeah. can still be friends, but yeah, like sorry. Like, <laughs> the games are too long. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But you talked about, like, Having, you know, someone who's OG, is that old guard? Yeah, uh, original gangster. Orig <laughs> but, but it means a oh. bunch of things like OG, like oh, that's the wise older person, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So, like that advice from, you know, OG, like 
hey, this is a good opportunity. Mm. Don't mess it up. Yes. What's the, what was so good about the opportunity? Wow. The money. Wow. <laughs> the first day of refinery training school, I, I didn't know what I was getting into. I nudged the person to my right and said, how much do we get paid? This is back in two, uh, 2006. I said, 21 an hour before I made $10 an hour. I was like, this is incredible. I love this place. I didn't know what they did there. I didn't know anything about refining. And um, it changed my life. It allowed me to see the world start a family, like get married overseas in France, like like things I'm from Chester, like stuff that doesn't happen you know, what I mean? so it changed my life it gave me self-worth, had more dignity, you know, hold myself kind of head higher, like even walking around this great campus today, I'm like, I'm like okay, I've, I've been I've seen the world, I've done things, you know what I mean I don't have to, I could be from Chester but still be one of the greatest institutions in the world and hold my head up, yeah, because I've seen some things, you know, because of this job You also shared with me that you had left the refinery, yes. actually, that you were like, okay, I'm, I'm done. This is not a healthy working environment for a lot of reasons. Mm. And then you went back. You yes. want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, and uh, I built up the courage. I lost my friend Chuck Charles Armour. I lost my friend um, and mentor uh, Jim McHugh. And I lost uh, Mike West. And I said, I'm not a scientist. I don't have any data, but this place is, it has to have something to do with this. You know, they were dying in their 50s. Uh, one was in their 60s, but I have to leave. My mom passed from cancer when she was 29. And um, I built up the courage. Uh, it took me a while, but I did it. Came up, boss, and said, I can't do this anymore. And... It was hard. They thought I was crazy. <laughs> they know I was a little weird. <laughs> I did random stuff, but they, they called me crazy. Like, nobody leaves. You don't leave a job making between a hundred and $200,000 a year. You don't do that. You, you, nobody does that there. So, And then I left, studied screenwriting in New York under Jerry Prezegian. He's one of the greatest TV showrunners ever, writers, producers, produced the Golden Girls, Frasier. So I thought, oh, I'm going to make it. Like, he loved my work. I wrote a script called Midnight Oil, a TV pilot. And it ended with an explosion at the end. So it was the same, you know, he loved it. You know, he helped me come up with the title, Midnight Oil, for the script. And, um, yeah, I was in New York. I was amongst, you know, I'm in New York. Yeah, like, they love my work. And I studied acting that year, and I studied um, writing also at, uh, from a professor in Philadelphia, Sloan Seal, screenwriter professor. So I was like, this is it. So I applied to Sundance, HBO, their fellowships, their writing fellowships, denied. <laughs> so I just put, I was like, man, no matter what, just like my dad, all the things he tried to do in business, it's like maybe what I'm doing is not good enough. So I kind of, um, I text my boss and my former boss at the refinery. I said, hey, Mike, it's like texting an old girl. Hey, how you doing? So I texted him, how you doing? And he was like, he was like, hey, yeah, we actually need people. We need, you know, we're short supervisors, so... I, I was um, I was ashamed because people were pr some people were really proud of me like man what is it like out there to get sleep now it's you know what is it like in the normal world they're just was, people were fascinated and I feel like I let them down and I let myself down and um, like my one friend John followed me he left because I left he's like man if you did it I'm doing it we talked about it for years and we I finally did it and he followed me and I didn't tell him I still haven't told him obviously he found out that I came back and I was ashamed. So one of my friends saw me like a, one month into me returning in 2018. And um, he said, dude, hold your head up. It's OK. I left, too, because he, he left when he worked in New Jersey at Eagle, our Eagle Point refinery, which closed, too. 
He said, it's okay. He just knew because I'm usually the smiling, happy person. I was just ashamed that I did that, that I couldn't stick it out. And, um, yeah, I thought. It's so clear, though, that, you know, I just get this sense and you get the sense in Midnight Oil about you have and had a, a lot of friends among mm-hmm. your coworkers yeah. there. And I can see why they would be following you as you mm-hmm. left and interested when you came back. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about co-workers mm-hmm. either cooperations or collaborations or not wanting to talk with you about midnight oil it was how you framed it i learned because i never did a documentary so if i framed it like if i came to them like edward snowden dude i'm doing something it's gonna be big i'm, I'm coming at the bosses i'm gonna get them they're like oh no i don't want to talk i don't want to talk <laughs> but if you just if you approach them with uh i'm just gonna tell our story you know what i mean the people on the outside don't really know who we are and then you, they'll be more minimal to that I loved the way that you just said that, like the people on the outside, because there is this inside world. Yes. And you, you know, are one of the very few people in that inside world who have made the decision to talk about what mm-hmm. happens inside and yeah. to bring it outside. Yes. To show it to the world. How has that been received by the people who were with you on the inside? Wow. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them don't like me right now, and that's very painful, especially from me. But someone who tried to cultivate likability and uh, never want anybody to not dislike me. It's been really hard. And yeah, a lot of them don't like me. There's a Facebook group we had, about 750 members, and uh, I was kicked out of it. Once it was discovered that I talked to Philly Thrive, they found out through following, they're obsessed with Philly Thrive. So they just <laughs> followed their Facebook page and said, what is the XPS worker with a film screening? Like, they lost it. And then... <clears throat> so let's just back up mm-hmm. just for a second, because the same day that you were doing the screening with us here at Penn, Philly Thrive was organizing the occupation of the refinery near the entrance site. Um, At the same time that in Delaware, in the bankruptcy court, high-level negotiations were going on about the sale of the refinery. The Philly Thrive also did a screening of Midnight Oil Mm -hmm. and sent, uh, did a live stream of the screening here on campus for the people who were down occupying Mm -hmm. the refinery so that they could take part in the Q&A session with you and Mm. I just wanted to make that context a little bit Mm. clearer because it was there was a lot going on at that time so was it that your former co-workers were upset that you were screening the film or was it specifically that you were screening the film with Philly Thrive it was a hundred percent with Philly Thrive they've been obsessed with them do you have a theory about why that is? Is it that Philly Thrive has been extraordinarily effective in advocating that neighbors and residents' concerns be heard and actually accounted for? Is it something more? Is it that Philly Thrive is is insisting on better data collection in an environment where there hasn't been much reliable environmental data about refining operations? Like, what is it, if you had to speculate? I think... uh race has a lot to do with it i really do Hmm. Uh, i do and uh yeah for years i would hear how they would talk about philly thrive and some not not all they they would talk about philly thrive and um you know all that what they want they go collect their welfare checks or whatever i would hear in meetings stuff like that and uh, i think race has a lot to do with it and i and also i think it was a lot of anxiety at the time 
and um, like anybody against them, like it could be any any Philly Thrive, anything they would just attack, attack. But it was especially obsessed with Philly Thrive, mm. which I thought is the wrong. It was counterproductive because they're not. It, it was the Carlisle Group. It was these other entities that were affecting you. That we had to fight for medical all these years. Uh, that gave you no severance, uh, no extended medical. That's your battle. But they, some, not all, some just couldn't see past that. And uh, so I, I, you know, as a, as a person of color, I could, I knew that. But I think race had a lot to do with it. I really do. What's going to happen with this film that you've made now? Yeah, um, it's going to keep editing right now. I <laughs> got to say, like, as you know, like, <laughs> since this screening, we've had so many requests for, for yeah. from people who want to screen it, who want to show it, who want, please put us in touch with Bilal. <laughs> <laughs> so you must have big plans. Yeah, big plans. Uh, keep keep fi- finishing the project, uh, adding music, thing, editing, and uh, yeah, screening. I want to do a lot of screenings in Philadelphia, continue to do that. It's a global story about environmental justice, about fossil fuels, global warming, climate change, but I think it's especially a Philadelphia story because, uh, yeah, I think we're, you know, we're, we're ground zero for a big environmental justice fight, and, uh, and I think it's ongoing with the new company coming in. So, yeah, uh, film festivals, things like that, and uh, yeah, just... Maybe uh, some public television. I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm learning. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, I'm learning every day. It's <laughs> so, so exciting. Wow. Well, I yeah. just really, it's such a great piece of work. And right. it's, it's just a, a real pleasure to talk with you. Mm. I do want to give you the chance to touch on anything that I, that our questions and, and conversation so far hasn't addressed. Um, no, just one thing I learned uh, since we last met. I learned about what you say is like, I always wanted to be the person to say what you feel. Like, I always admire, like, Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, like, Gandhi. The people just say it from the soul, and, and regardless of the consequences. And um, you got to be, for, to young filmmakers out there, um, you got to be ready for the backlash. Because I'm a very sensitive person, and it, it was really hurtful, like, the backlash I got from being honest. So if you're going to do what I'm doing, uh, put yourself out there, be vulnerable. You have to be ready. Ready for that. <laughs> Ready for the backlash. That's such yeah. great advice. Yes. Be yes. brave. Stand up tall. Yes. Use yes. your voice. Yes. That's yes. a lot easier said than done. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's 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 uh it's hard. It's hard. But uh yeah, I'm still still here. I have my family. Like I'm glad I have my my wife. She's so calm. Like the world can be on fire. She'd be like, uh yeah, uh, go take out the dishes, but like I mean, take out the trash. <laughs> go take out the trash and uh <laughs> actually the morning of the fire. Everybody's calling me, You okay, you okay? My, this typical uh my wife, she said, Hey, she texts me, uh, which car did you use for that last Amazon purchase? I'm like, Do you understand what's going on right now? She's just so cool. You know, so without her I would be a mess. Like we're she's like perfect for me, so because I'm the warrior, I'm always, you know, and she's just so calm. She's like, yeah, go and tell your truth. They'll get over it. And so, she, she came to the screening, too, and yeah. I was so amazed. You know, you guys have this beautiful little boy, like really yes. little baby. Yes. Yep. Um, and you spoke so movingly about, like, why you decided to speak up this mm. time. Yeah, my son, uh, I found out. 
think it was well June I found out we were having it. Kid, you know, and I'm thirty. I'm thirty nine, so I thought we were done. <laughs> but you know, I was like, I don't know, because <laughs> my eight year old is kicking my butt. I don't know if I can do this again. So my wife, she always went that. She did. I don't want your our daughter to be alone. I was like, okay. And she told me she um, we're having a. a kid and um i did the george jefferson i was like elizabeth hell <laughs> i was faking it she surprised me we were at a bed and breakfast and i was like hell <laughs> i'm coming home so uh she um yeah but uh i was immediately very happy you know all that natural feelings you have you're excited like oh man like son that's gonna be cool and then i just got immediately scared i was learning more about global warming and the future and all the uh, the shootings and school shootings, the political uh, gridlock right now. I just, I did, I wasn't very hopeful, so I became immediately terrified. Like I, it, like climate change and global warming. Like it, it just keeps it like kept me up at night. The more I learned, I read David Wallace Wells' uh, Uninhabitable Earth, and then the IPCC's report. Um, it was, I don't know. <laughs> so I was very um, terrified for his future. So. Yeah, so that's another reason that, like, that helped me be brave. Like, you're doing it. 30 years from now, they're going to see this. My son and my daughter, and they're going to, hopefully they're proud of me. You know? I think they're yeah. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's going to take a little